0: Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it's, in, it's incredibly encouraging and wonderful to know that we serve an exalted Christ. He is not worried. He is not undone. He is not surprised by anything. Being God himself, he is fully omniscient, fully omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, divinely supreme, majestic over all things, for eternity enjoying himself and being enjoyed by himself. It's the triune God that we look to is so, in some ways, so, so complicated, but yet in other ways, so simple. God, we look to you, the one who has eternity in his hand, so to speak, the one who has our lives in his hand, the one that knows all things before they come to pass, the one whose hand is in all things. So we ask, Lord, and pray this morning that you would, once again, would you please, in a, new, in, in a fresh way, open up our eyes to behold your glory. We know, we know that there are things in this world that we are satisfied with that don't, have any business competing with you, and yet we we do that, I pray, God, that you would help us to jettison and to put a, put aside all things that, that compete with you and that we prop up against you. May we fully worship you and enjoy you and love you this morning, Lord, through the preaching of your word. May it bring about the intent for which you send it forth. May we Rest in that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like after Sam's introduction to Scripture reading and the song we just sang, it's like we could just all go home now, but um, then we wouldn't continue to move through Romans chapter 5, so I'm a necessary component for us all. (laughs) Um. There's a question that I've asked myself a hundred, if not thousands of times, in which you've probably heard me ask you hundreds, if not thousands of times, and that's this. <clears throat> What's your goal in life? What's your goal in life? What do you want out of life? Everybody has this idea, this picture, this vision, if you will, of what they want life to be like, what they hope their life will be like, what they want God to bring about in their lives. The question is, what do you want in your life? What do you hope happens? I firmly believe, I've said this many times before, I firmly believe the Westminster Confession has it right that the purpose, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God. This should be what your life is all about. What's the goal of your life? to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Like I think that if my life were defined by those two things, I I'd, I'd be happy by that. But I come to a realization that that's really hard to embrace and it's even and it's really hard to maintain. I was just thinking about it this morning. My whole sermon is like, was rewritten this morning as I'm lying in bed, and I'm having, you know, just, you have these mornings or these times where just you feel like, oh yeah, all I want is Christ, all I have is Christ, the glory of God, the pursuit of it, the embracing of it, the enjoying of it, enjoying, like that idea of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, that's like, all I want to do in my life, and I feel like I'm right. I'm being brought up to the third heavens. I'm about to see something like I've never seen before. And then all of a sudden, I hear our cat meowing down the hallway and waking, and I'm, all of a sudden, I'm like, don't wake up the baby. And I'm like, man, that's just a perfect example of what life is like. Like, I, I, I really do want to glorify God. I really do want to enjoy him, but I'm so easily like, Snapped out of those moments of wanting to do it, whether it's by a crying child, a cat meowing, an argument I get in with somebody, some, you know, a theological issue being wrestled over. Why is it so hard to maintain what I know is good for me to maintain and doing what I know I should do? Like I'm fully convinced that glorifying God and enjoying Him forever is, 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 is the vision of my life, should be the vision of my life. Why is it so hard to do it? Why is it so hard to maintain it? To get there? And then then if you get there, and you're like, yes, that's what I want, a meowing cat just shatters it all in the moment. Why is it so hard to to live that way? You might prefer the barking dog, whatever. Why is it so hard to maintain that, to live that way? I, I, I was reading... Proverbs twenty nine yesterday. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen says, Where there is no prophetic vision, people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. You have to cultivate and create a vision for the glory of God being the center of your life and maintaining that vision jettisoning that vision is really when we get into sin and we cast off restraint. And that's really when obedience to the law and keeping the law becomes a burden and something we don't, we don't want to do. And God's, God, God seems to change from being this benevolent, loving father to this like, harsh, cosmic taskmaster. And so the goal of having that vision of the glory of God and enjoying him is is hard and then and maintaining it is equally hard. And in our text today we find out why it's so hard. There's part right? I mean if I'm speaking to my brothers and sisters, there's part of us, isn't there, that want that wants that. That's that's the goal. When you hear, the goal of your life should be to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. There should be part of you that goes, "Yes!" Yes, like, "Oh yes, please." And then there's also part of you that goes, I, I, I struggle to maintain that. Maybe you're here today, and, and you're like, not even close, pal. I get it. Our text today helps us understand why that is. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to read the whole text but we're just going to focus on verses 12 through 14 this morning because there are some, there are some theological, some doctrinal things in the text that I want for us to, to understand. And it's essentially, essentially this. We've been talking about two things. Well, lots of things in the book of Romans, but two things in particular that I think are important for us to remember as we come into this text. Number one is that we have, we have this incredibly rotten, sinful nature, Romans 1, Romans 3, what we saw of chapter 5 last week, just this, this rotten sinful nature, what we're going to see in Romans 7. Think about this, 1, 3, 5, 7, like all these odd chapters are this, this highlighting of like our sinful nature. We've seen that. We also see what it is that's been imputed to us and given given to us in Christ, which is meant to offset that. Like each one of us is this this. Competitor, if you will. I have this inward competitor of my sinful nature and then the Spirit of God that is within me that's renewing me into the image of Christ. And there's this war that goes on between them. And our passage today talks about largely the bulk of the passage, just talking about these two representatives this representative of Adam and the representative of Christ. We love what it is that's been imputed to us in Christ, don't we? I mean, I wasn't there at the cross. I didn't live a perfect life, I'm not righteous, I'm not innocent, but yet, that's what I am in his sight because of the work of Christ, have that imputed to me. It's been credited to me on my account. Well, but the flip side of that is true as well. Your sinful nature is imputed to you, it's given to you, it is yours in Adam. And our text sets us up to look at these two, if you will, called federal heads, that represent their people. And we're going to see specifically in our text as the federal head of Adam is put on display, his failure, our involvement in the failure, and the subsequent nature that's changed in us because of that na- because of that fall, Adam representing us as our federal head. And we're going to see very clearly how him as our federal head, this doctrine of original sin and total depravity are just linked with one another. They're inescapable. There's a reason why if you go through many of the confessions, the Westminster, the Second London Baptist, most systematic theologies talk about the federal headship of of Adam, original sin, and total depravity all in that order because they're linked with one another. You can't separate them. One automatically cascades into the rest of them. And that's what our text points out for us this morning. And it sets the stage for what's wrong with us, and why we can't maintain this vision of the glory of God and the desire to delight in him all the time. So let's read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 entirely, and we'll focus on verses 12 through 14 this morning. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's trespass, for the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification." For as by one man's disobedience the many were made righteous, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can see definitely in verses 14 through 21 this contrast of Adam and Christ put on display. The trespass of one, the free gift of the other, and the, and the subsequent, um, I guess, results of each one. But as we look at 12 through 14 this morning, we focus specifically on Adam. And we're focusing on the kingdom that has been lost. The title of our sermon today is The Kingdom Lost. Point number 1 if you're if you're taking points would be this well, how did we get to where we are as Paul describes it in 12 through 14 how did we come to this place where desiring the glory of God and maintaining and fighting for the glory of God is so difficult is because of what we saw at the beginning point number 1 is that the king has fallen there's this little book called Keeping the Heart by John Flavel he's a puritan and I would encourage you to read it. And he talks about the, the utmost urgency and the necessity of keeping the heart and the dangers that ensue and lurk into our lives when we don't guard our heart above all things for, for it flow the springs of life, Proverbs 4.23. Why does, why does Scripture command us to guard your heart with all diligence or vigilance, because from it flow the springs of life. You live out of your heart. Our desire to keep the heart is of utmost importance, and the reason why it's difficult for us to do us is because of the fall. The very beginning is where it all started. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter two. This is where it all begins. Our our passage in Romans five, Paul's setting this, right, he's, he's referring to this particular situation. And by, and by the way, Paul assumes Genesis to be historical narrative, right? It's not some, like, made-up fairy tale. These are real people, real trees. Of course, communicating spiritual truths that undergird all of it, but historical narrative, in fact, nonetheless, see, refers back to this situation, And as we find it in Genesis chapter 2, where it all begins, chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Drop down to verse 15, 16 and 17. The Lord God put the man took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it and the Lord God commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. So man Adam is created innocent, fellowship with God with a type of righteousness, a clear command given, and clear punishments given for disobedience. This is a a covenantal structure: blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And we're going to see in Romans 5 how Adam is different than us when we sin. But he, nonetheless, he's put in the garden. He's given a task. God gives to him, and we all know what happened. Genesis chapter three, verses six and seven. So the, when the woman saw, right, they've been tempted by the serpent. Genesis three, six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That is the fall of mankind, the fall of the king. God is the supreme king, but he creates Adam as an under king to rule, to practice dominion, to subdue the world and all things. He should have subdued that serpent but he didn't. And you see that even though in Genesis it tells us that Eve ate first, and there is another passage of scripture that refers to the transgression of Eve, but here Paul attributes the fall to Adam as the representative head, the one that was created first, the one that was called to preserve and protect the world as the under king. Paul describes what happened at that moment when Adam and Eve sinned and and partook of what it was that God told them not to do. And he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Sin being the moral uncleanliness, hostility toward God, self-assertion, and it affects our actions and it changes our nature. As Sam had read for us this morning, Adam's nature was changed. Our nature is changed because of that as well. We now have a new nature, born into the world, dead in our sins and trespasses, hostile to God. Why do you, why do, you do what you do, and why is it so hard to fight for a vision of the glory of God because of what it is that we're reading right here? Why do, you do, the, why do people do the things in Romans 1? Why do they exchange the truth of God for a lie? and worship the, the, the created things rather than the, create, rather than the creator. Why do we do, why is Romans 3, 10 true? For none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. Why is that true? Because of this. Why are we called sick, ungodly, enemies, and sinners? Because of Romans 5, 12. What it is that he's teaching us took place in the garden. And it was through one man, through Adam, and after sin came into the world, death came riding high. They're inseparable. Sin and death are absolutely inseparable. This is the warning that God gave Adam. If you sin, if you disobey, you will die. The entrance of sin and death into the world was devastating upon mankind when the king had fallen. It's interesting, I'm reading through 2 Samuel right now, and you see this paralleled in David's life as well. David actually being a, a, a clearly identified king. In 2 Samuel, his, um, his life is just, it's rocking. It's going great. Chapter 7, he's the king. He's subduing his enemies. He's practicing dominion. He's being fruitful and multiplying, right? He's got children with like a bunch of different women. He's got, I mean, the kingdom is growing and expanding. And then what happens? Bathsheba. And God's curse upon David that the sword will never cease to devour in your house. Death will always reign in your house. And We see this theme repeated Throughout the Bible, Adam's fall, which, which, which introduced all of it and brought it into the world, which was then, like, recapitulated in David's story. Everyone's thinking, maybe David is the guy. The kingdom is here. The, we got this great and wonderful king. It's, it's dominion. The enemies are being subdued. Our land is expanding. We're having children. We're being fruitful, multiplying. Everything is going great. And then sin comes in and brings death. And literally, David's baby dies because of his sin, and, and the sword will never cease to devour, and death will reign in his house. It's a, it's a picture and a reminder of what happened in the fall and what happens in us. The king has fallen. Secondly, though, not only has the king fallen and in the, the, in the kingdom had, in being lost, but the kingdom has been corrupted as well. We see this in our text. It's not just that Adam sinned and Adam died, but what does he go on to say? Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, there's a way in our text in in which it says death is the result of one sinning. Adam, Adam didn't just die as a result of sin, but we die as well as we sinned, as, the, as many theologians and commentators say, in Adam. The New England primer, or primer, however you say it, says, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That Adam, as our federal and representative head, in falling and in partaking of sin, we being in Adam sinned as well, and therefore incurred the guilt to us as well, and death is, is proof of that. The reason why you die is because you sinned. And the reason why death reigns is because we sin. And Adam being our representative head, in that and that fall, not only were we in him and sinning, but in, in, in we then inherit his corrupted nature, which is the doctrine of original sin. Original sin doesn't necessarily refer to the first sin that Adam committed, but it, re, it's the, it refers to the result of our corrupted nature that comes from that sin and this is why death reigns death spread to all men because all sinned it's we become corrupt just as adam was corrupted the second london baptist confession puts it like this by this sin our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with god we fell in them and through this death came upon all all became dead in sin and completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of soul and body. Why is it hard? What, you ever hear people ask the question, what's wrong with this world? The Bible tells us what's wrong with this world. You ever ask yourself the question, what's wrong with me? The Bible tells me what's wrong with you. Bible tells me what's wrong with me. It's it's this fall, but it's not as if you can say, Adam, you just, Adam and Eve, you two just really screwed up, man. Like, tell you what, had I been there, things would be different. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. Adam is our federal head And this passage tells us what's wrong with the world. Calvin would comment and say, as he connects the idea of Adam being our federal head to this idea of original sin and our corrupted nature, says to sin in this case is to become corrupt and vicious. Again, the second London Baptist would go on and say, because of this, the guilt of their sin was accounted and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation which leaves one person exempt, the Lord Jesus Christ. Their descendants are now conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin and partakers of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. What's wrong with the world? Sin entrance into the world and 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 to be clear what he's talking about when he says that sin came into the world the world through one man we mean our human existence sin you know at one point sin existed exterior outside of us right i mean that's how satan tempted us he was sinful already We don't know for how long, but there was a period of time in which mankind existed, sin was present, and yet we weren't infected by it. And it wasn't until when we partook of that sin, we became in league with the sinful one. And because of that, our entire nature corrupted, the kingdom becomes corrupted. And what fell with the rest, with with mankind? The rest of all of creation, As mankind being the representative head of all of creation, creation was subjected to futility, not because of its own decision and choice, but because of our decision and choice to make it futile. As we sinned, we corrupted the entire place. Sin coming into the world and corrupting the entire creation. Adam's sin, as our federal head, corrupting our nature, being fully imputed to us, completely corrupting our nature and reigning with us. And not only that, thirdly, not only has the king fallen and the kingdom become corrupt, but the kingdom is held captive as well. We see this in verses 13 and 14. The universal change nature of mankind is important to understand when you get into verse 13 and 14. Because verse 13 seems to indicate that there's a period of time in which mankind's sin is not counted against them. But what's the penalty? The wages of sin is death. And has man, after the fall, always died? Yes. So the reign of death assumes the presence of sin against God. There's never been a time after the fall in which one person has not been born sinful and has not sinned. This is a universal problem of mankind. It doesn't matter if you're born in this you know, country of the United States of America, well-informed and educated and brought up well with all the amenities and comforts and conveniences that we have, or you're born to some family in a remote island somewhere else. Your problem is that you are a sinner separated from God. It's your very corrupt nature. Your parents are corrupted, you're corrupted, you come out, you begin corrupted, asserting yourself against God and sinful. Adam's sin is imputed to everybody that has ever lived or will ever live. And that is proven to be true because death reigns. So when he says in verse 13, sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. He's talking about this period of time between Adam and Moses, this particular period of time. And what do we say about those people that sinned? They still died, right? Was, was sin, it seems to be, if you're reading it just at face value, seems to be that their sin wasn't countered against him. It wasn't imputed to them. But we know that that's not true. I mean, just think a couple of the instances that took place in between Adam and Moses. Cain and Abel. Was Cain not, was not, his, was not Adam's sin imputed to Cain? And was he not held responsible for his sinful, his sinful decision? There's kind of this little story called the flood. Were, 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 were the unbelievers and the people who died in the flood, was Adam's sin not imputed to them? And were they not held accountable for their actions? Or how about Sodom and Gomorrah, and people who lived there? Was Adam's sin not imputed to them, or were they not held accountable for the decisions? Absolutely, they were. So the sin that he's talking about specifically—that was in the world, but is not accounted or imputed—where there is no law. Specifically, the sin, like Adam's sin as a transgressor. You think about how was Adam, how was Adam unique? And how is Israel unique? I mean, Adam is in a class all by himself, right? Verbally, personally, given the covenant command of God. Adam sinned from innocence to guilt. Adam sinned as the covenant representative head of all mankind. It was possible, I'll say this, possible for Adam to not disobey, having a a righteous character and disposition to begin with. And obviously he he sinned pre-fall. Now, the law given to Moses is similar to Adam but obviously there's elements missing. Sinning from innocence to guilty is no longer an option. You sin from guilty to guilty under the law of Moses. But what is it, and Moses wasn't the federal head representative of all mankind. Neither was Israel. But what do they have in common? A personal, verbal, covenantal law given. Of which people could not say, I didn't know. That's why so often throughout the Old Testament, sin is termed transgression because they're the covenant people of God. They're living within the the, the personal verbal law of God that's been given to them. They know what God requires. And when they sin, they transgress. To transgress is is a particular, I don't wanna say like type of sin, but it's a particular expression of sin when you know what has been commanded to not do and you willingly do it anyways. That's what Adam did. I mean, it can't be any more plain, right? Adam, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat, you're going to die. Okay, I'll try that. Right? Like, this is what, parents, this is what we do to our kids. Do not look at me and speak to me like that again. If you do, there will be consequences. <laughs> you just did it. Right? Like, you just did the thing I told you not to do. Same thing with Israel. Do not do this and do these things. There's blessings for obedience and there's curses for disobedience. So they both sin in that way. But the people that lived in the time frame between are still corrupted in nature, even if they didn't have and didn't know what God's revealed personal, verbal, covenantal law was about. If I go to another country and I break a law, and they arrest me or they find me. Can I say, I didn't know that was a law, right? No, the law exists outside of me. Whether or not I know of it, I still break it. Now, if I break it knowingly and willingly, that's worse. That's what Adam did. That's what Israel did. That's what we do as believers. And it doesn't mean that it's any, you know, sin is any worse or any less in a sense. It's a whole another study for other stuff. But because death reigns, it means sin is existing and you're being held accountable for your sin. You die because you've sinned. Everybody dies whether they've heard the word of God or not. What's going to happen? They're going to die. Why? Because they're sinners. They're corrupted in nature. Not only corrupted, but they're held captive by that corrupted nature as well. Whether they've sinned knowingly like Adam or unknowingly in the between time, people still sin against God because that's our very nature against him. And we know that that is true because, as he says in verse 14, yet death reigned. Death reigned. Mankind is held captive under the taskmaster of death because we are corrupted and sinful in nature. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. It doesn't matter if you were verbally and personally visited by God and he descended from on high and gave to you his word and you willingly disobeyed it or you were just acting out of what it is that you were already naturally inclined to do. Death reigns and we are guilty. And I would say that there's a parallel to that period of time. There's a parallel to that period of time between Adam and Moses that exists now, where there are people and nations all over the world that don't have the written word of God. Romans one is still true, right? Like, people exchange, still, I mean, that's the reason why he starts off with Romans 1 the way that he does, right? This is, the wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, right? This is true for everybody, whether you have the word of God or not, but all the more reason why for us to bring the Word of God and to be missions-minded and evangelistic as we bring the truth of the Word of God to people who are just living out of their corrupted and captive natures to show them that there's freedom in Christ. That there's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like 1 Timothy 1.15 is such good news. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So we, And how does he save them? But the preaching of the gospel. How are people's corrupted nature undone? How are people delivered out of captivity through the good news of the gospel? That's the only way out. And so whether they're, you know, knowingly and willingly sinning against God and his revealed law, or living in a place where they don't have the word of God and they're just acting out of their corrupted nature, sinning against God. Hell is what awaits them. Unless the Lord Jesus Christ intervenes and he uses us to bring them the gospel. The world is so widely held captive under sin that all people die, whether they break the law knowingly or unknowingly, because we have been, our nature has been fundamentally changed. I think of ways that we can apply this, and implement this in our own lives. We know that Adam is a type of one who was to come, and that will will transition us into our passage for next week. But Adam is a type of the one who is to come, and a federal head, and a one where a potential life giver. What the text shows us is that there's no life to be found in Adam. Only sin, death, corruption, captivity, but he's going to break into such a wonderful way. That's why I wanted to read the entire text into where what it is that Christ does and the free gift of life, justification, and grace that he offers us and is found in him and in him alone. It's such a, one, it's such a wonderful thing to know that, that he is undoing this and rescuing and saving his people out of this condition and I think that's one of the things that we need to apply in our own lives is people who have, yes, we still have the corrupt nature. I still, I still get deterred off of my, my goal to glorify God and enjoy him forever and all that I do. I can't maintain that for very long. But I do want to do it because of what it is that Christ has done in me. But there's this constant, like, erosion at times it feels and this ebbing away of that desire to do that because of my corrupt nature. i got to tell you, unless you're intentional in your own life of, of guarding your own heart through the Scriptures, through prayer, through fellowship, through the means of grace that God has given to us, we will wander and stray away. So I think about how this is applicable for missions, taking the gospel to places where people haven't heard the good news. And I think of the a- application for it in my own life, in my own heart as well, to tend to myself, to be putting forth effort, to maintaining, fighting against this corrupt nature that I have, even though I've been set free. I mean, this perfectly, Paul's so, God, he's so perfectly Sets us up for what it is that we're going to get to in Romans 6 and 7, right? You're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to righteousness. Yes, your nature has been changed, but understanding our federal head, who are we going to live under and who are we going to consistently live for, is the constant like, admonishment and the encouragement to see ourselves a particular way and to apply ourselves in a particular way to live for God and his glory and not our own. Um, It reminds me also of the importance of where the problems in people's lives come from. And if you've been at the Biblical Counseling Sunday School, you know, if you've been at North Hills for a little while, you know. Where do people's problems come from? The heart, the inner nature. That's what's corrupt, that's what's held captive set free in Christ if they're a believer, yes. But it helps me understand and it reminds me where every real problem, spiritual problem, takes place. And it reminds me of the importance of addressing the root of every spiritual problem. And it reminds me of the importance of being a person that can cultivate the skills and understand the importance of getting to the heart where the problem lies. Because guess what? It, oftentimes it's not so easily accessible. And we've been learning in biblical counseling the importance of creating skills. Man, the purposes of man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding will draw it out. What this passage reminds me of is that their problems are like, oh my goodness, they're, they're so much deeper than they think. My problems are so much deeper than I think. They reside deep within the inner man. That's where we need to go with each other. That's how we need to be trained to get there with one another. That's where Jesus goes to help people. And that's why we preach the gospel, whether you're a believer or a non-believer. Because the gospel is about the the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he does and how he sets people free and how he renews people. You and I, instruments at best in his hands, don't have the ability to bring about the change that he only can bring about. Lastly, I think of the importance of um, not considering sin and its wages lightly. Don't consider your sins or the sins of another person lightly in passing. It's not a small thing to transgress against the Holy God in the major sins and in the smaller respectable sins. It's amazing how much we tolerate and put up with that's sinful, that we don't call sin, identify as sin, and yet it's absolutely sinful in the eyes of the Lord. Don't take any sin lightly, I'm telling you. If you think that you can make a, a if you think, you can willfully make a decision that's sinful against the Lord now when your heart is somewhat soft. How much, why do you think you're gonna be able to make a different decision later when it's even more hardened? We knowingly and make these sinful decisions against the Lord and when we do, we're not keeping the heart and we grow further and our hearts harden What makes you think, I just can't handle this anymore, I'm just going to do what I want to do right now, I'm going to give into this sin, but next time, I'm going to get it right. What makes you think that you're going to be able to do that? How do you think you're going to be able to take sin lightly now and not take sin lightly later? It'll be even harder later. You fight it now and you put it to death now. Do not take sin lightly. What is it doing it is crouching at your door, and it wants to master you, devour you. Our, our, our enemy Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. His intent for you is your destruction. He hates you with a wicked hateness, with a, a wicked hatred. Why would you take any sin or temptation lightly? that he is giving to you to consume you. Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ who has delivered us ultimately to him. And this is why we go to the communion table every week. Corrupt and held captive because of Adam's fault, but there is a king who has won and undone. Amen? Like, lived the perfect life, died a horrible death, resurrected, ascended, and now intercedes on our behalf. This is the reason why I think Paul has done so much front-loading to talk about the tremendously magnificent and unparalleled work of Christ. Because when you come to a passage just like this, it's like, yeah, it is. But look to Christ, and that's what we do at communion time. We look forward to the time where the the captivity, broken completely. The corruption, broken completely washed away in him. And we rejoice in that. We worship him in that. We celebrate. That's what the communion time is about. As we look upon and we think, how did that, how how did now that happen? How do I have that hope? Because of the work of Christ. His body and his blood for me. All of that good stuff now imputed to me over and above what is mine in Adam. Amen. So the elements are on the back table, you can get those and return back to your seat, spend some time in prayer, meditation, and we'll partake of the communion elements together here shortly.